morning. Glad you guys are joining us this morning. For those of you who are joining us online, we're glad you're joining us today. We hope that you are uh, staying safe and uh, warm. Hopefully you got some power. It might be hard for you to watch if you don't have power right now, but you know, maybe you have a generator and you shut off your refrigerator so you could join us for church because you have real meaningful priorities and you follow Jesus first. Not to guilt you or anything, but... I'm kidding. Anyways, hey, I'm glad you guys are here with us, and I'm glad you're on online. Uh, a couple of quick things I want to let you know about before we get started is um, we do have a youth group going on Monday nights from 6 to 7. They meet at the gate right across the street from the high school, um, from Central High School. And so if you have junior high or high school students, um, you will be glad to send them. You'll be glad that they went. Um, after spending all of yesterday with no power with them, you will be very glad to see them leave for an hour tomorrow. Um, and they will be glad they went. If you know junior high and high school students, we'd love for them to join us uh, at the gate six to seven. Also, um, <clears throat> oh, also wanted to let you know is uh, we had this, uh, for those of you who are local, we had this like little weather thing happen in the last day or two, and uh, it's been a little chaotic around here. And uh, so I had this idea, and uh, a lot of times I come up with dumb ideas, and then basically I expect you to help me uh, make these ideas happen. And here's what I realized is that there's uh, plenty of people in our community, trees fell down, fences fell down, all that kind of stuff, that may not be able to, um, <clears throat> they may not have the resources or just the physical ability to help clear up some branches that fell um, and some things that were a little bit of a mess. And so I came up with this idea, and this is the way it works, is if you have a chainsaw or a trailer or a strong back and are willing to use any or all of those, we would like to ask you to text the word Monmouth to 97,000, right? It'll come up with a little menu and like number five, I think it says ice storm. And you can click on that. You can say, hey, I've got these things and I can help because maybe, maybe you work for a government office or a bank tomorrow and tomorrow is President's Day and you don't have work. I don't want to make you feel guilty or anything, but maybe, or maybe just this week throughout the afternoon, you have a time in the afternoon and the evening, and you would be willing to help somebody, um, and then if you um, have some issues, you know, some trees fall down, some fences or something like that, and you just don't have the physical ability, um, you can also text Monmouth to 97,000, and we're going to see if we can't just, you know, Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. And maybe if the church can be the church in a really practical and simple way this week, and we can help some other people in our church out who um, might not be able to help get some things cleared out and all that kind of good stuff. So Monmouth 97,000, if you got some way you can help, or if you need help, uh, both places would be great. Okay, so we are in the book of Matthew. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 15. If you don't have a Bible, uh, don't worry about it. Everything we talk about is going to be right here on this screen here today. Matthew 15. So let, let's look right away, right into the question that Jesus is going to be asked by some religious leaders. And then I want to give you a warning because your temptation is going to be, I'm just going to be real frank with you, the temptation, when you see the conflict that's going on, the temptation is going to be for you to check out. 
right? Because it's going to seem foreign and inconsequential and not important. But here was what I want you to know, is that Matthew, and by the Spirit of God, Matthew, in a very limited amount of space, not much more than a dozen chapters to record three years of Jesus's ministry, Matthew, and thereby God, believed that this conversation that consumes about half of Matthew 15 was important enough, not just for the early church, but for us 2,000 years later, to keep it in this text. Of all the stories we can tell about Jesus, Matthew, and thereby God, thinks that there's something really important going on. And so I'm going to ask you to kind of dig through the weeds with me a little bit and see if maybe... If maybe Jesus isn't asking them, and maybe if Jesus isn't asking you a really important and difficult question today that hopefully will give you life and encouragement today. So Matthew 15, here it is. It's right here on the screen. The religious leaders asked Jesus this question. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. See how riveting and pressing a conversation point this seems for you? Right? A couple things I need you to know. First is this, is that this question has nothing to do with the personal hygiene of the disciples, okay? This does not have to do with them preventing the spread of disease and sickness throughout um, ancient Near Eastern uh, Israel, right? That, that's not what this conversation is about. In fact, a lot of times we read throughout Scripture that it'll say things about cleanliness It'll say things like certain things are unclean or this person is unclean or the word that Matthew's going to use today is defiled, that things are defiled. And our mind, because the way we translate it, our mind, we think cleanliness and we think sanitation, right? Now, now here's the thing. In the Bible, in their day, cleanliness, when you see the word clean, unclean, defiled, undefiled, righteous or unrighteous, sinful or righteous, when you see those words, it has nothing to do with personal hygiene. Nothing. (laughs) The disciples washing their hands has as much to do with personal hygiene as it does for the priests to smear blood of lambs. It's, it's not the same. You have to get out of your mind. In fact, here, here's a better way to remember it, um, just because it's, you know, they both start with Ds, is when you see the word defile, think distant. Defile, distant. Unclean, distant. In fact, as they're trying to translate this uh, throughout the church's history, Latin, which I know is, you know, it's not, the Bible was written in Latin. It's about a thousand years ago. They translated the Bible into Latin. And when they did, the word that they used when they were translating this literally means outside of the temple. Because they understood that what was being emphasized when something was clean or unclean, defiled or undefiled, righteous or unrighteous, was not personal sanitation, was not, you know, did you sing the ABCs twice and wash your hands and inside and outside, top and bottom, not that, all the way up to the elbows, right, not not that, but it was about distance from God. It was about being outside of the place of God or being inside. So when you see the word defile, which is the whole conversation we're going to look at today is going to be about what makes someone defiled. Don't think dirty, think distant, distant from God. So, so they ask this question, right? 
Um, verse 2, right? We, we see the question again. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. This seems like a completely foreign conversation. It doesn't make sense to us. doesn't really understand. And there's some really important cultural things you need to know that's going on to understand why God chose to keep this story of all stories in the Bible for our benefit 2,000 years later. Not just our benefit, but for all of creation, okay? So, so here's the deal. In the Old Testament, God gave his people laws. He gave them commandments. He gave them rules. It starts with the Ten Commandments. The, the Jews would call it the Ten Words, but it started with the Ten Commandments, and it was, there were 613 of them in the Old Testament. And some of them were governmental because he was just teaching them what it meant to be a people, and how to interact with one, of, one another. Some of them were ceremonial, and some of them were moral. Okay, there were kind of three categories of law. Ceremonial, governmental, and moral. Now, what they did, we all do this, we do this just the same ourselves, is that God would give a command, one of those 613 laws, and um, they would do, they, they, they'd, make a, they'd make a guardrail, Right? Or they make like a little fence. Because see, here's the deal. If God says, don't cross this line, I know that not all of you can see, but this is the edge of my carpet right here. Okay? If God says, don't cross this line, okay, uh, as we try and figure out how to live that out, and as we try and teach our children, as we try and teach generation after generation, as we try and instill that, it is human nature for us to say, you know what? This is the line God gives he says, don't do this, but, but I want to make sure that you don't just accidentally stumble over it. So how about don't do this? And they would create guardrails, more restrictive. So, so the root of this question comes from God tells in a ceremonial law, he tells the priests when they're doing certain things that they need to put their hands under running water. Now remember, it's not about sanitation, there are certain things that God recognizes and calls us to, to engage our full body because he knows that we are both physical and spiritual beings. And so the religious leaders, the, 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 the priests would come and they would, water would run over their hands as a part of drawing them into worship in this practice, okay? Now, the, the religious leaders thought this, and it's, it's not a bad, I, I honestly think a lot of what we call the fence laws or the guardrails, um, the Bible calls them oral laws, or as Matthew calls them, the tradition of the elders, was started with good intention, right? Because here's the logic. If God says that when priests do certain ceremonies, they need to put their hands under running water, okay? If that's good, then you know what's better is what if everybody puts their hands under running water every time they eat, right? Because if some is good, more is better. We do this, right? We build guardrails and fence laws. And in fact, there's a lot of places in your life that it's extremely healthy and wise to build guardrails. If you've ever had children or babysat a child or saw a child, you might have had this conversation, right? You might have said to them, uh, hey, um, don't play in the street. That'd be a smart thing, right? Can we all agree? Don't play in the street. That's the rule. We don't play in the street. There's cars. You don't understand. You don't understand what's going to happen. There are cars. But then you'd catch yourself and you'd realize, because some of you have children like this, and you would go, oh, no, 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 no. Don't even go on the sidewalk, Right? That's a guardrail. That's, that's creating a fence. That's saying, I don't want you in the street, so we're going to create a little space and distance. That's not an inherently bad thing. 
And Jesus' response to them seems even more complicated and more foreign to us, but if we dig through this, we're going to see Jesus saying something really powerful to them that I think he wants to say to us as well today. It says this in verse 3. He answered and said to them, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God? Right? That's the law of God, Old Testament law of God, 613 laws of God, for the sake of your tradition, oral commandments, fence laws, guardrails, whatever we want to call them. For God said, written law, Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. And the one who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But verse 5 says this, but you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would, be help, would help you has been given to God, he is not to honor his father or mother, and by this you have invalidated the word of God or the law of God for the sake of your tradition or oral law or fence laws or guardrails. Now, here, here's what's going on, right? I told you this is going to get into the weeds because we have to to understand it, okay? By Jesus' day, there had been a tradition that had developed that they called Corbin. It's kind of ironic, that um, Evan Hoover did his testimonial video about going to Corbin uh, just today, and we're going to talk about Corbin. And Corbin was a term that they came up to literally mean give it to God, which is why it's called Corbin University, they give it to God. But what had happened was over the years up to Jesus' generation um, that you could, they created these ceremonies. They're extra biblical. They're not prescribed in the Bible, but you could have these ceremonies and you could go to basically church and you could say, I want to declare publicly that everything that I have is God's. Or maybe you don't say everything. Maybe, maybe you say, I want to declare that this cattle, all this cattle is God's. This section, when I die, everything goes to God. That, that I am just a manager or steward of the things that God's entrusted me. Now, first of all, as just a tangent, like that's actually the only healthy way that we can interact with the things that we have. Like, it's, it, it's actually a really smart thing to recognize and understand that you don't own anything, that you are a steward of the things that God has entrusted you. The, the tension comes, the tension comes in that um, what happens when your parents begin to age? And in their culture, there was no social safety nets for aging people. There were no um, elderly homes. There was no social security. There was no Medicare. That the system that they had in their society to care for elderly people was it was the responsibility of the sons to take them in and to use their resources to provide for their family. Maybe a parent, maybe an aunt, or an uncle, or even a great-grandparent, depending on how generations lived. Now, here's the problem. Okay, here's the tension is that what had begun to uh, occur in ancient Israel was that um, people would, Corbin, they would give all their stuff to God, and then years later, their parents would come, and they would say, you know, we just, we just can't handle the family farm anymore. Like, it's just too much. It's too much on your dad's back. He can't be out there all the time. We've got to sell it all. We need to move in. Um, we, we need to come back, and we need, we need your support and help for the life that we have left. And, uh, and, and the son would look at him, and they'd go, Oh, man, like, I'd really like to help you. I mean, like, the Bible tells me that I need to honor my father and mother, and I want to honor you guys. You guys have been really generous. You, you've modeled for me what it means to follow the Lord. I really want to honor you. The problem is I just, I don't have anything. And then your dad goes, 
are you an idiot? I saw a thousand sheep in the backyard. What are you talking about you don't have anything? And then you go, oh, 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 that stuff, actually, that's God's. I gave it all to God. I don't actually have anything that I can use. I mean, I couldn't rob from God to provide for you. Would you want me to rob from God just so that you can have some more stuff? Do you see the tension that's going on here? The, the, the conflict that's going on here? But look at Jesus's See the tension, and, 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 and the, 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 one of the things I want you to see in this is that of all the things they're discussing, there's nothing inherently wicked about any of the commands. The commands of God, obviously, honor your father and mother, that, that's good, right? Amen? Amen. It's, uh, my parents are in the front row, they said that most loudly of anybody, okay? Uh, <laughs> right? Um, that's good. Like, God gave that. And, and then the fence laws, right? There, there's nothing wrong with, with saying, um, as they did, that, that when you come to eat, that they want you to run your hand underwater to remind yourself, to draw yourself in to worship, to remember that everything that you have is because God is goodness and life for us. Physical acts that draw our hearts into worship with God, those aren't bad things, even Corbin, like, to say, like, everything I have, God, it's yours. Everything that I own, every drop of everything that I have is yours. Like, that's, that's not an inherently wicked thing, but it develops a tension. And Jesus cuts deeper into the issue than they want to acknowledge and they want to deal with. And when we read Jesus' response... When we read what he says in Matthew uh, in verses three through six, we have two general reactions. It kind of depends on where you are on the spectrum. One, one thing that we, we do sometimes is maybe when you read Jesus' reaction and, he, and he's critiquing the religious leaders and he's calling out their hypocrisy, maybe something in you goes, yeah, yeah, religious leaders, you guys don't get it. All you are is about rules, and anytime there's a standard of teaching and there's a moral absolute that you're robbing the humanity and don't you know about grace and don't you know about compassion and, and, and that we, we kind of like, well, we, we say things like this. I know what we mean, but we say things like this. We say, uh, like, no religion, no Jesus. And by religion, we mean rules. No rules, no rules, because rules are oppressive. Rules separate people. Rules are offensive. Rules divide people. And what we miss in this, when we respond that way, when we're, what we miss in what Jesus is saying is humility. A kind of humility that recognizes that maybe, just maybe, there is a God who is big enough to see a bigger picture than you see. That just the same as an adult who says to a child, don't play in the streets, that maybe, just maybe, there's a God who understands something bigger about you and has the right and the authority and your good in saying, don't do that. Don't go there, don't do this. And we lack a humility and an ability to see just like a toddler. But the other response we have, which is maybe uh, like even that much more subversive and painful, is uh, we, we have this idea of thinking, uh, yeah, 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 you tell them. You tell them, Jesus. You tell them all their rules are wrong, that they missed it, but we've got better rules. 
Yeah. I mean, they lost perspective. They couldn't see it, Jesus. But we, we make better rules. You remember? Don't drink, don't smoke, don't go with girls who do. Something like that. Right? Will that work out? Don't, don't watch R-rated movies. Yeah. Don't say those words. <laughs> oh, especially in those places. Don't go those places. And we just create our own rules. And, and, and see, here's the thing, is that most of those who are outside the church, that's what they think following Jesus is about, is a following a bunch of rules. You know why? Because for decades, that's what we've told them it's about. And what it lacks is just the same as the first response, is it lacks a humility, a humility that understands that maybe there's a God who sees the world more clearly than we do. But Jesus responds differently. Jesus responds in a third way. So look at verse eight. Look at verse eight. Jesus quotes a prophet named Isaiah. And uh, he, he says this, this people <clears throat> honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. The religious leaders, they come and they ask a question of Jesus about their hands. And Jesus critiques their heart. Jesus is abundantly more concerned with the things that are going on in their heart than the things that are going on in their hands. And before you get nervous about where we're going with this, it's because of uh, Jesus, it's because of where Jesus sees things being birthed out of. That Jesus' concern is with their heart. The question he's asking the religious leaders if they're willing to hear, and I think the question he's asking you and me if we're willing to hear, is this question. How's your heart? Not your hands, not what have you done, what have you accomplished, what commitments have you made, what have you sworn, what have you failed to do, where have you messed up, where have you lost track, but his question for you as it was for the religious leaders, I think, and for me would be this question. How's your heart? How's your heart? So with the time that we have left, I, I, I want to look at three things that I see in this passage that can become enemies to our having a right Heart. And if you're note takers, you're going to love this because I got three points, okay? And we're even going to start. We're going to point them up here, okay? So he, here's number one in asking you, how's your heart? Is something we need to see from this text is this thing, is that a good thing done for a bad reason is a bad thing. A good thing done for a bad reason is a bad thing. There's nothing in any of these things that inherently in of themselves are sinful, Right? The religious leaders aren't coming up and saying, Jesus, why do your disciples sacrifice to idols? Right? Why, why, do, your, why do your disciples rob people? Right? He, nothing inherently sinful. But a good thing, even standing in front of a crowd and saying, all that I have is God's, can become a bad thing when it's done for a bad reason. It made me ask this question. Think about this for a second. What was going on in the hearts of those people that they could sleep at night knowing that the only resource for their aging parents was themselves and they kicked them out onto the street? 
without any other safety net. What, what, what was going on in their heart that they could sleep without any fear, without any worry, without any panic, knowing that their parents could not only be starving or exposed, they could be dramatically taken advantage of. Was, was the praise of the men and women in their community? I mean, think about that day. The whole community gathers together for this big ceremony. Were you, were you at church last week? Were you at church last? Did you see Victor? Oh, Victor, that dude is a beast. Man, when I grow up, I want to be, I want to have the faith like Victor. That dude stood up in front and he said, everything I own is God's. Isn't that amazing? Was the applause of men and women in their community for their apparent righteousness, for their good efforts, for their generosity? Was it the praise of men? Was it, was it, was it the fear of lacking? Maybe for them, maybe what, maybe what made it difficult for them to be willing to follow God and everything was they were afraid they were going to run out. Because <laughs> maybe, Lord help us, your parents live longer than you plan. Amen? <laughs> Remember, my parents are sitting in the front row. Or maybe they get sick with something. And it's more expensive. And maybe all this money that you'd set aside, what happens if all that money you'd set aside for yourself and you'd, pray, you'd prepared and you'd planned and you were disciplined and, and then it just slowly weaned away? What happens if you run out of money because you're helping provide for other people? Was it the fear of lacking? Or, or maybe it was just this. Maybe, maybe um, one commentator wrote this way. He said, maybe it was just the lust of stuff. Maybe they just like their stuff, their vacation and their toys. But whatever it was, we see in them that a good thing done for a bad reason is a bad thing. So how's your heart? Number two says this. When good things become God things, God himself becomes a threat. Here's what I mean. It's best to tell you through a biblical story. There's a story in the book of Numbers, and we don't have time to get into all the details about what was going on, but in the story, there ends up with a, a snake infestation. Can we all uh, agree that that is the thing of horror movies, okay? Um, there's a snake infestation, and uh, God provides for them. God's going to protect him, and he says, anybody that gets bitten, I'm going to heal, I'm going to protect, and here's all you have to do. I need you to make a bronze snake and then raise it up on a pole in the middle of the camp, and if anybody gets bit, right, anybody gets bit, you look at the bronze snake, and I'll heal them. Which one of you is going to be out there with the snakes, like grabbing them, like, ha, ha, look at this, ka. <laughs> Look, God healed me, right? But I mean, this is an amazing thing that God does to them. I mean, this is the kind of thing that you tell your grandkids about. You sit them on your knee and you say, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Let me, let me tell you. Let me tell you about what God did in my day. There were snakes everywhere. I mean, snakes like you couldn't imagine. Snakes everywhere. And I got bit 17 times every time I looked at that snake. You remember that bronze snake? The bronze snake that sits at the center of the camp. You know that snake? I looked at that snake and God would heal me every single time. You see what I, what I recognize and realized in this is that um, sometimes even the good, miraculous blessings of God can become an idol and a burden to future generations. Even the incredible, amazing moves of God can become an idol 
and a burden to future generations. You see, that's what happened is they kept that snake because that snake healed them, or that's what they thought. And so anytime they'd get scared when they'd go to war and there'd be an enemy that seemed too big, they'd raise that snake up because, hey, last time we raised that snake up, it saved us. And God sent a king named King Hezekiah, and King Hezekiah, one of the things he did was he destroyed that snake. Because you see, what had happened in the people is that their eyes had gone off of the deliverer, and they'd moved their eyes to the deliverance, and because of it, they'd become deaf to what God wanted to do. Isaiah, he's a temporary of Hezekiah. He, he writes in the same period. He says this in, Hezekiah, in Isaiah 43. He says, look, look. This, he's speaking for God. I'm doing a new thing. It's not the snake. It's not the thing back there. That was great. That was beautiful. That was life-giving. But I'm doing a new thing. Don't you recognize it? You see, whenever our eyes move from the deliverer to the deliverance, we become deaf to what God wants to do in us today. Uh, another pastor said it this way. He said that when our eyes move from his face to his hand, when our eyes move from his presence to his stuff, <laughs> one, one said from his presence to his presence, We've lost our way. When a good thing becomes a God thing, even God becomes a threat. All these things that we're discussing, all these practices and traditions, like they were all good things at some point, but their eyes had begun to wander away from the deliverer to the deliverance, and they'd become deaf to what God wanted to do in their life today. And so my question for you today is, how's your heart? How's your heart? Number three, this. A good thing that harms is a bad thing. A good thing that harms is a bad thing. Jesus <clears throat> uh, has this interaction with the religious leaders, and then what happens all the time is the religious leaders leave and the disciples go, uh, and Jesus goes, you, you understood what I was talking about. And they go, yeah, of course we do, right? And so Jesus finishes his conversation with them, and it says this in verse 18. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. Remember, distant. The religious leaders come. This is going to be real important to this passage. Look, the religious leaders come, and they're asking a question about what distances them here, what distances them vertically, what distances them from their God, right? You see that? And look at what Jesus responds. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, and then some translations put like gossip or speaking against one another. <laughs> Do you see it? The first critique that Jesus uses of them is honor your father and mother, right? It comes from the Ten Commandments. And it is the first commandment that is horizontal in nature. All the commandments, however you order them, all the commandments before that are this way, right? Right? Have no other God before me. 
Honor the Sabbath to keep it. They're, they're all this way, right? They're all vertical. They're all relationally with God. But Jesus' critique of them is to critique this way. He, he starts with honor your father and mother, and then look, he just goes through the Ten Commandments. He doesn't even have to go look at the other laws. He starts with all the relations. He skips. Jesus is saying that part of defiling, distancing ourselves here, is, is connected to distancing here. These are all horizontal relationships. Murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander, lying about one another. These are all horizontal. See what Jesus is wanting us to see. Well, John, one of Jesus' disciples, he says it better. He writes in 1 John, he writes, um, he writes to all the Christians around the area, and he says this. He says this way. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have not seen, can not love God, whom they have not seen. Whoever does not love their brother and sister, I, I love too, this is just a little detail. Um, look, he, he goes from the active claim um, of hate which is like actively not liking, to the active claim of omitting love. Those are different things. Not just not hating people, but not loving people. Does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have seen. The religious leaders come and ask Jesus a question about what creates distance here. What do we need to do? Well, what are the steps we need to do to make sure that we stay tight here? And Jesus' response is, what's your heart look like here? What kind of distance, what kind of defiling are you doing here? This is our little weekly promo for Rooted, is one of the great gifts of Rooted is that we get to live life together, one with another, and we get to deal with some of here issues in week one of Rooted, we say this. We say, uh, if you look at the book of Genesis, what is broken in us, according to the book of Genesis, is a relationship. And thereby, what is broken can only be healed in the context of relationship. The religious leaders come and say, hey, how do we make sure this is right? And Jesus says, distance here is connected to distance here. So how's your heart? Do you feel apathetic? Do you feel cold? Do you feel distanced? Do you feel like you're going through the motions? Does this feel distant? What's in your heart here? Is there, is there unforgiveness? Are there unresolved issues? Is there bitterness you're carrying? Is there heartache? Is there anger? What's going on here? What about the people that God's entrusted to you? The family that he's connected you to and placed you in on purpose. Whether you like it or not, God put you in the family and put you in on purpose. What's it like here? What's it like here? Are you fostering the kind of love that is from an overflow of your affection for Jesus? Is there healing and restoration? Are you conduit of grace, mercy, and kindness here, because what Jesus is trying to tell us is that distance here 
is unequivocally connected to distance here. So how's your heart? How's your heart? Maybe today, maybe today you feel distant. You feel disconnected. You feel apathetic. You feel cold. You feel like you're going through the motions. Maybe you just don't even know what you feel. I think today might be the day that we need to do some things here. I remember hearing a pastor uh, that I really respect, and he talked about one day where he realized that there was brokenness here between him and one of the men on his board. And he realized that God convicted his heart right before he went to walk on stage, and he turned to uh, his associate pastor and he said, I guess you're preaching. And he got up and he walked and he went to go deal with here because we cannot claim to love a God whom we have not seen if we do not love our brothers and sisters whom we have seen. How's your heart?